When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end. Of a song, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of love. Walk on through the rain. Today I was on my way home from a football match. I stopped at a Seven Eleven, which was down down the road from our house. I bought popcorn. I bought a Galaxy chocolate bar, and I filled up with Pepsi. Came home, sat down to watch a game, and like m- millions of others, I thought it was going to be a good game. The season Liverpool against Notts Forest. A short time into the first half, the game was abandoned. Well, I believe. And I think everybody else watching I believe as well uh, at home was that it was typical English football hooliganism. That it was Liverpool at it again. As the hours and the days unfolded, we realised that something more serious had happened. 96 people who went to watch a game of football never came home. Almost 800 others had life-changing injuries. I'll never forget that time 31 days 31 years ago in Hillsborough and I think the football world this year will have market with a minute silence it just shows that there are more important things than sport than football and that we are lucky that we can go to a game now and enjoy it because the greed and the stupidity the idiocy of the people who were organising football at that time it hasn't gone away but it has been tempered so we start off this Capital Sports 2.0 with a thought and prayer for those who passed and those who are still waiting for justice from Hillsborough in 1999. I'm Alan Moore. And on that tough note, we're going to move on to the show because usually we'd, we'd end the show with that reminder. But right now, uh, we are three years uh, on the go this week. And I'd like to introduce two of our mainstays of the show. Mr. Andrew Flint, our man out in Siberia. Well, uh, well, how are you doing, Alan? 
Very, very good, Andrew. And finally, we can see him. He's in full lockdown. It's Double N. Double N, how are you doing? Uh, good morning. Fine, fine. Thank you. Folks, we start on a sad note because we're going to make the rest of the show a little bit better. We have a preview of the Turkmenistan Football League because there's only five leagues that are actually being played at the moment. There's Taiwan, Turkmenistan, there's Tajikistan, there's Nicaragua, and there's Belarusia. So where everybody else is um, in lockdown and waiting for this pandemic to end, these leagues are going ahead. We're going to have a chat about that a little bit later on. Double N is going to handle that. Ever first, Andrew Flint has a few pieces of football news uh, from England, and uh, then we're going to have a doping story. And one thing I want to congratulate Andrew Flint on, we've forgotten that Arsenal were doping under Arsene Wenger. <laughs> well, um, it's amazing, really, in my mind, that we are now, what, 25 years on from the period in question. And it's suddenly, it's suddenly little drips and drabs are coming out more and more. There was news stories that I, I'll be perfectly honest, I had missed about 10 years ago. Um, now, Paul Merson is one of the Arsenal players at the time. Um, Arsene Wenger came in, we mentioned this on the last show. He was a completely different personality, philosophy, tactical mind uh, and preparer of his players. Paul Merson was not the most conscientious preparer. He had his problems and to be fair to the man, he fronted up to them, he went to rehab and he's turned his life around. So that deserves a lot of credit. And he said at the time, um, that he was given injections, that he didn't know what it was and he didn't question it. You know, we saw an interview, uh, well, a, a chat on Match of the Day, actually, it was with, between Ian Wright and Alan Shearer, where Shearer made a joke about, well, we should have had the FA Cup given to us because Arsenal players were, were doping at the time. And, uh, and Ian Wright said, well, look, everybody was taking vitamins. Well, I don't think everybody quite understood what was going on because... At the time, even he admitted it wasn't common, it wasn't normal. The The reaction from Arsene Wenger a few years ago, I found very, very telling. He never he never specifically he said, we didn't force anybody to take anything they didn't want to. Well, <laughs> when, you've, when, you, when you've got a, a foreign group of players, and I think it was fantastic on, on the pitch, the, the influence of the particular French, the core French players, Emmanuel Petit, and then you had Dennis Bergkamp would come over from Inter Milan, and it was a continental wave which really did improve the quality of football. They were used to the culture of preparing themselves far more efficiently. Ian Wright said they had steak pine chips before games in like the early 90s. Wow. And suddenly this guy comes in and you see these foreign players who are performing at a higher level, capable of performing at a higher level, stronger, faster, for longer. They think, well, hang on, I want a bit of that. Of course they're not going to question it. It's not a case of forcing them to do it. They, they weren't prepared. They didn't know what it was they were doing. They simply were catching up, doing what yeah, they Yeah, it was part of the You're dead right, Andrew, because, I mean, if for a long, long time, uh, this has been going on, the European concept. I mean, it, it, uh, it didn't come from America. It was there always. And they, they used it. And they, I, we, we pointed in the last show where the, um, the German team who won the World Cup in 1958 Mm -hmm. syringes were found in the dressing room. I mean, it's just, it was well known. I mean, it's, this isn't, this isn't new. And you're right. Arsene Wenger brought it to the next level. Christian Gross came in that Tottenham believed that they would, do, he would do the same thing. Unfortunately, the Spurs players weren't interested in doing that. 
And by the time Claudio Ranieri was in uh, Chelsea, the players already had a kind of a some sort of leveling that they knew what to take. And when he brought in the Mape, the cycling up the game, especially with uh, EPO and caffeine, the players were like, no. And, you know, it, it is a leveling. Uh, Double N, you are a, um, an Arsenal fan. What do you think of these revelations? Well, um, in my opinion, they're also shocking because, like, we hear so many stories in these Olympic Games, especially when it's like sometimes it goes politics full, like, full speed. But we uh, seldom hear about them in football. So specifically, uh, hearing about it in Arsenal club was very upsetting for me. Um, yeah, it's a real, really, really sad fact that so many people are actually not quite understanding the philosophy of sports, like where you have to like develop your body and compete at the full like fairness. They're like doing some shortcuts and going like taking shortcuts and doing things that are not right. So it's, it's sad, actually. You're right. It is shortcuts, is cheating. And let's not forget that they, they, the stuff that they take means that they can train harder and longer and recover quicker. So, you know, they, they're working as hard as everybody else. Actually, they're working harder than everybody else because the stuff that they're putting into their bodies allows them to do it. So this is, you know, it's like... Um, Meldonia, even though people say, oh, like it's, it, it doesn't help, it does. Because at the time when I was working sports nutrition and we were speaking with like gym rats and athletes, I knew football a second. I was giving it to tennis players, as in the, a mother of one tennis player gave me a box of Mildrenat to say, can you give that to my daughter? You can't get it in Europe. Um, she needs it as a prophylactic because it helps boost the immune system. I gave it to her. I checked it wasn't on the band list. It was all okay. And she took, this is the one where you get this amazing rush for about three, four hours and you, you do it. So a huge effect for training or for, for matches. And she herself told me that. So I was like, okay, well, you know, I didn't quite understand. I didn't quite understand. Alan, there's, one, there's, there's one thing you touched on there. I think it's quite important to remember in all of this. And we mentioned this months ago on, on a Capital Sports radio show. And it, for me, it's this. People sometimes have a, a slightly misunderstanding of exactly what it is that the effects of doping can have. They turn you into a Superman. They don't turn you into a Superman. They give you that extra edge. You, like you say, the actual athletes and players themselves, it's a grey area. Yes, some will know a little bit more than others about exactly what it is they're doing. They've still got to be finely tuned athletes. They've still got to work extremely, extremely hard. And it, so we really is entirely on the people who are providing it for them and giving them the information. For me, it's 100% of the blame is in, in their court because even if somebody slightly understands what they're doing, they should be guided away from it. And if they don't understand what they're doing, then it's, I would say, it turns into a very serious matter. So the athletes and players largely, in my books, need to be guided better rather than blaming the athlete because they're the figureheads. And that's the frustrating part. When you see these stories about doping scandals, an athlete, a footballer who's banned, it's the, it's the athlete, the famous person's name, they splashed across the headlines. Very rarely is it the actual doctor or the, 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 the advisors behind them that get put in the spotlight, and they should be, in my view. Listen, this is something, you're, you're so right, Andrew, because we've, we've brought up time and again, I think anyone who's interested in fighting against doping 
you go to the source, you go to the people who make the drugs, who provide the drugs, who administer them, who advise on them. And it's the thing that has constantly, constantly annoyed me about so many people we've found here in Russia who've escaped justice, you know, like the Stepanos, for example, or Rodchenko. They were heavily, they, you know, the, the as Vasily Yuri Stepanov, the, the husband of, of, of the uh, runner, he was involved in deleting results. He was in the lab itself. He was getting her the drugs. He, like, I mean, and then it's like, oh, well, uh, then they had this, like, you know, Philippine conversion, like that, oh, well, on the road to Damascus, we said, no, we won't do any, to, any, this anymore. Same with Rodchenkov. Rodchenkov was about to be put in jail. And he was going to lose a lot of money and he disappeared. So this is the whole thing that these people who are involved in supply and the advice and the administration of it, they need to be done. Athletes as well, because if the athletes are warned and told, don't do this, then they know. You know, they, they know. There's no two ways about it. If they understand what they're doing, it's like smokers. You tell smokers, this is going to kill you. If they continue to smoke, that's down on them. You know, it sounds very, very bad, but move on to something lighter. Um, Newcastle Takeover has hit a very, very strange bump in the road, Andrew. Uh, what is that all about? Yes, we, we, we've been hearing about Takeover for, I'd say, the last seven, eight years at Newcastle. It seems to be constantly coming and going. So, quite frankly, until it is the case of when you're signing a player, until you see the player holding up the shirts, having signed the contract, I don't believe it, until we actually physically see this go through I'm going to struggle to believe it so it's a bid of about 300 million uh, 310 million some places are quoting for Newcastle United that a consortium headed by this Amanda Staveley who was part of the consortium who wanted to who bid to take over um, and had a shall we say fractious relationship with um, Mike Ashley the owner uh, about two or three years ago uh, I've been led to believe that something like 80% of the actual bid money is coming from a Saudi Arabian investment uh, fund, a public investment fund. The way in which they are purchasing the club is it's a bit of a head-scratcher. Uh, it's not just simply, here's the money, Mike Ashley, off we go riding into the sunset. There are problems with a, I think, something like £110 million loan um, that has to be moved over from Ashley to uh, Staveley and this consortium. But papers have been filed uh, for an official bid, but the papers don't name the public investment fund from Saudi Arabia. So basically, Mike Ashley is giving a loan to this uh, consortium. They're going to, to buy to it. To allow the, the, the deal to go through. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, we, 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 we know what sort of a man Mike Ashley is, and we know that his business, he tried scandalously, scandalously to keep his Sports Direct empire going by claiming it was an essential business because people need fitness equipment to keep fit or some disgusting reason like that. His zero hours contract policy and whatnot. So we know full well that he is only in it to make a profit. Now, he's losing a lot, in like everybody else's. He doesn't want to lose that. And with a huge football club to run, that is the quickest, easiest way to cut his losses. So and I believe it's an interest-free loan, apparently. So <laughs> to loan somebody £100 million so that you don't lose money, uh, that's the state's... Well, it's, it, is a, it is a realistic business 
matter, but actually has no interest in the club, quite clearly. The, there is some good news. Um, we saw that clubs have had to back down. Bournemouth, Spurs, uh, Liverpool, of course, mm-hmm. famous had to back down from the uh, taking advantage of the, the furlough payments mm-hmm. that are available in the UK. Also, uh, a strange one, um, well, a good and strange one, we'll, we'll speak about it actually on Friday, with Zenith uh, players, for, well, PR purposes, we, we know, are out delivering food to uh, elderly people in St. Petersburg, so well yeah. done then. In League A, the French top division, the players are taking a 50% pay cut, is that correct? Uh, yes, they've uh, well, they they set they've announced that they're going to because the media broadcasters have held back their latest instalment of of TV money, which is amounts to over 100 million euros, and they said, look, we're not we're not going to pay that until we actually get some product um, to to use. So in return, the clubs have estimated they'll lose about three, like a lot of leagues around the world, hundreds of millions of euros if the season is not finished. But even if they do plan to finish it in the future, they've still got the interim period when the clubs are, you know, again, I can understand on a basic level from a business sense, you've got money that you had planned to have in, TV money, which is the largest chunk of money that clubs have, that's being withheld. So the players are taking a like say a 50% pay cut. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost, I don't want to take away, it is a good story and it is, it is positive that the, the players are being understanding in, to a degree. When you put it in comparison though, um, to what some players are committing, their pay cuts they're taking, the one that stood out for me, you mentioned Newcastle, was Matty Longstaff. Now he's one of these, he's come through the Newcastle Academy, he's in the first team, but he's still on a youth team contract of £850 a week. And he is committing a 30% pay cut. And, I mean, it's, it's, he deserves as much credit as, as Neymar does for, for giving up £75,000 um, a week for clapping his home fans. Breaking news, well, not breaking news, that in Turkmenistan, uh, Dublin, correct me if I'm uh, incorrect, it's the Yokari Liga. Yokari, Yokari Liga. There, it's, it's, obviously, it's a tough flight in the, um, the Turkmen, uh, Turkmenistan um, uh, football pyramid. Yep. Eight teams involved. Uh, it's restarting this weekend. A lot of sort of, you know, people are asking questions, should it be? But then again, as we know, in Turkmenistan, uh, there's... No coronavirus, as um, Dolan has himself reported. So, well done, Turkmenistan. We have, we're very, very lucky to have Merdan Atayev. Um, if you want to do the introduction, and then we'll hear what should we be looking forward to in this weekend's opening round of games in the Yokari Liga. Thank you, Alan. So, um, as I mentioned in the introduction to our show, there are five leagues currently running. So, technically, there are four. So... Uh, our league is gonna start resume to run. It's, it's actually the first match is on 19th of April. So uh, to hear more about that, I'm very happy to introduce my friend and uh, journalist from Turkmenistan, Mr. Merdanatayev. He's uh, currently working for Innovative Tur- Innovative Ashgabat portal. So we will have the links of the links posted in our social media. So welcome to our show, Mr. Merdan. How are you feeling now? Yeah, great. Uh- I can hear, I don't know if you can see me now. 
We can, mm, we can see I wasn't expecting I wasn't expecting that I would be joining the, such a conversation. I, I thought I'm just going to watch another uh, conference. <laughs> it wasn't a pleasant surprise. Uh, things are great here. How, how, how are you guys doing over there? <laughs> so uh, in Moscow, uh, it's full lockdown, I think, in, uh, for both myself and Double N. I think, uh, Andrew Flint, is it lockdown for you as well? It, it's not as full of lockdown as in Moscow, but um, it's it, businesses are closed and cafes closed, but not not too much else. We're okay here. Merdan, we really want to know. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the Turkmen and the Yokari Liga, and also um, who should we look out for in the league this year? Like, say, clubs and players, because I know that Altinas Asir uh, they are the reigning champions. They they're going for what is it? Their seventh title in a row. Who who are they and uh, who's backing them? You mean Alt Nasser football team, you mean? Yes, yeah. Uh, I gotta be frank with you because uh, here the football fever is not like in other countries. There was in 90s, uh, there was fever like Kupeta was a, one of the favorites. I gotta be frank, I don't know the latest uh, updates on the football. Altenasir is the football team of the Turkmen Telecom, Turkmen Telecommunication Company. Okay, they're backing them. Uh, yeah, financially, they're the strongest one. Uh, they can afford uh, anything. I mean, their, their upgrades, their uh, facilities. And overall, you said that uh, football isn't, um, you know, isn't huge in Turkmenistan. Uh, how many people w- would go to a normal game? Like, we're talking like, Five, ten, or fifteen thousand local games, national games like the local league. Uh, my observation not more than 300 400 people in stadiums, so that's why recently they haven't been using big stadiums, they've been using the fields next to the stadium. If international games like Turkmenistan, India, Korea, uh, North Korea, where they when they came, the stadiums with 20,000, 30,000 are filled up and. There is a, as many uh, which cannot get into the stadium, especially the being fan for the national team. Uh, the fever has risen uh, after 2017 when there was Asian indoor games a year. Uh, after that, it's got uh, that fever. It, the tickets are free, uh, but still uh, for national games and for local games, uh, we cannot drag many people. Oh. In terms of football as part of uh, life in Turkmenistan, um, are a lot of people uh, playing it? Is, is it, is it, is it a, a public sport or are there other sports that are more important in Turkmenistan? Well, uh, definitely football is the most favorite sport, just like uh, in many, most of the countries. As hobby, uh, you I mean, do play football. But what I'm saying is football is... As you know, it's a mega business. It's a show business, actually. Yeah, we've been, we haven't been able to, to make it as a show business recently. That's the problem, actually. When, the, when it will be show business, we can drag more sponsors. We can drag more media. Our, we have the media. We have seven channels, national channels, but they don't know how to make the propaganda of the football to make the people, uh, I mean, to drag the people into it. People would rather watch foreign, I mean, international, English Premier League, Italian League, but they have less 
in league. Most of them know about. Who who are the best players in Turkmenistan, and who do they play for? Uh, you see, I can't even. Bother. <laughs> yeah, Coach Murat Lot, Coach Murat. I don't know Anna Coach Murat Sahed, something like that. We hear their names when there is international games. Score goals. Hey, who scored? Uh, Sahedov scored. You know <laughs> who is Sahedov? I don't know. <laughs> okay, but we know uh, a few players in Russia, a few players in Indonesia. Yeah, because it's it's easy. There's quite a few of the Turkmen players who are playing abroad. Uh, yeah. Even in Tajikistan, they're they're playing in Uzbekistan as well and Kyrgyzstan. So they they are outside and Kazakhstan of course as well um, Berdan uh, overall um, the coronavirus is not affecting life or sports in Turkmenistan everything is just going on as usual correct? well yeah a thousand and actually okay I think we just we've we've uh, lost Merdan. Okay, uh, Dublin, uh, just a question that uh, we asked that, that uh, coronavirus isn't really an element right now in Turkmenistan it's not affecting life or sports well, actually, so many uh, news outlets reported that the coronavirus word has been, had been banned, and we ourselves reported that, if you remember, on, on our show. But actually, when I uh, was preparing for this interview today, I was digging some news archives and some other portals, Turkmen portals. Like they're saying openly that there are some uh, coronavirus hotlines. So please, if you have any problem, please call. So. At least I cannot confirm that it was banned because official portals are using that word. So, but yeah, from what I hear, the situation is now um, not critical. So the hospitals are not or full. So like, yeah, the situation is stable. Thank, thank, thank God and uh, continues to be so. And I hope we will just, uh, it will go on and we will pass these hard times with, with not, no, not, not many casualties. Okay, that is a good one. We're all hoping the same thing. Uh, we we do know, uh, thanks to Andrew, that uh, Kenny Daglish is recovering, so that's that's uh, good news. We we said, of course, um, folks, we're we're going to run away now in just a moment. Um, before we do, we do have like another <laughs> the, the, another Kenyan falling foul of doping. Um, uh, Andrew, can you just give us a quick update on that because that that's that's one of now. There's no doping testing because, of course, nobody's training. Nobody, nobody, nobody. No, of course. The, the genius of uh, Travis Paper Target from Yosada tells us that no, we don't need to be testing anymore. And his all repeating what he said in the, the, this kind of echo chamber. But another Kenyan found by the Athletics Integrity Unit found doping. Uh, well, yes, Mr. Daniel Wanjiru, who won the London Marathon in 2017, has been, well, he's been banned from competing whilst they confirm the use of a prohibited substance and or method. It does beg the question when we're told by the highest, you know, cleanest authorities that there will be no testing, that somebody has been tested for a banned substance. I'm, I'm rather confused by that, to be honest. Wanjiru is a very successful runner. He's, he's competed in uh, marathons around the world. He's won the Amsterdam Marathon as well in 2016. Um, yes, the Athletics Integrity Unit, which in itself as a concept is rather rather confusing, really, because usually <laughs> we see the the either WADA or USADA or whichever country it is, their anti-doping agency, this is the Athletics Integrity Unit. So I'm starting to wonder, well, who, who has the 
ultimate control in testing in this period when there is no testing. Perhaps it's all a one grand scheme to create a smokescreen where nobody quite knows who to answer to or who is in charge. I, I, I'm, I'm rather lost, I'll be honest. It's very, very confusing right now. I mean, the AIU are doing a good job, but it's strange. And all the athletes that they have investigated, there's a severe lack of uh, athletes from the US, UK and Australia. Maybe because it's all in the gift mm. of uh, one Mr. Seb Cole, but that remains to be seen. One tragic piece of news broke yesterday. Carl uh, Anthony Towns, the centre for the Minnesota Timberwolves, his mom, Jacqueline, passed away due to um, uh, coronavirus uh, complications. And it's a sad situation because he's one of the players who actually had given up part of his salary as well and had been quite vocal in the fight against uh, coronavirus. We know how it began in, in, in the NBA. We knew where it started from one French player, uh, Gobert, acting like an idiot, and it went off. So, um, <clears throat> once again, uh, remember that no matter how tough it is, we'll get through it. Mm-hmm.